0: Hey there, welcome to this excellent church. We believe the word of God is the charter of our lives and God's way to reshape values and reconcile men to himself. We hope this message brings edification, exhortation, and comfort. Be blessed. Praise God. Good evening, everybody. How is everybody today? So, thanks to my able assistants, helping me to put the questions together in PDF, line-spaced, bullet points, so that I will not miss anyone. Hallelujah. Um, today we're going to be talking about answering questions in Genesis. Um, 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 Sister Angie talked about all the Wednesdays in, in, um, Wednesdays in uh, February based scholarship services. I don't think that will be necessary. Um, I don't think that will be necessary. I think we can answer the questions today. And then um, if there are any more, we'll answer them at the last Wednesday, in, Friday, um, in February. Is that okay? So we can have our normal Bible studies during the week. Praise God. So I think the ones we have so far can all be answered um, today. Hallelujah. So I will start by giving us a background of what the book of Genesis is about. All right? And give us a background to how, on how to understand and read the book. I noticed something during Bible study. People don't say that from the way they at the back. Have you guys noticed? Okay. anyway let's go I want to start by giving you a background on the book of Genesis um, the book of Genesis by written, was written by the man of God Moses um, Was written by the, book of, by the man of God Moses and there are several attestations of it internally in the document and um, scholarship also tell you that there's a lot of internal um, internal corroboration that shows that um, there was a, there's a single thread of story, single thread, or or there's some consistent thread of of ideas um, and an agenda from the book of Genesis flowing down to the book of um, Deuteronomy. Hallelujah! So that those books came together and was presided over was written by one person. Hallelujah! Before I continue today i am not a what they call it i'm not a new um, old testament scholar praise god i'm just a pastor all right and a bivocational one at that amen i don't have any postgraduate so i'm a lay scholar um i come to you with um answers from my own um faithful bible study and also leaning on the work of actual scholars who have gone ahead so i put together a lot of things um Some of my references are Meredith Klein. Um, She's the one that did a new commentary on Genesis. John Walton, very popular scholar on Old Testament scriptures. Um, Michael Heiser, Paul Copan, James Hoffmeyer, Kenneth Matthews, and Douglas Jacobi. So these are people that you you can check their books and you'll see some of the things. And the differences of opinion I also talked to you about. I'll try and tell you the two camps or three camps or whatever, on the different opinions that they, ha- they are on some of the questions that you guys have asked. Hallelujah. Do you understand that? So I'm leaning on their work. I did not do any original work or I don't have any special remark. Hallelujah. I'm not in any translational committee, praise God. So let me just continue. So, the um, first thing, I want to give you a background to the book of Genesis for you to understand. Old Testament... Um, Old Testament, scholars, there's something that they like to really reinforce and for you to understand about the book of Genesis. Um, I think after this is, I'm going to do some teachings on how to read your Bible, how to pray, how to evangelize, stuff like that, practical theology stuff that will help us. One of the things that you're going to hear me talking about in how to read your Bible is that before you study a book of the Bible, it's good to be aware of the background, the context and the genre of the book. The genre of the book is very important because the intention of the writer matters. The whole idea of Bible study is trying to find out what the writer meant to say, not what you like. Do you understand that? When we are studying a book of the Bible, we are trying to find out what the writer meant to say, what was in the mind of the writer. Do you understand that? So for you to understand what was in the mind of the writer, you also have to appreciate and recognize in your mind the genre of the book. That means what kind of literature is it. A book that is fictional, in quotes, I'm just general examples now before I talk about Bible. Uh A book that is fictional will not be treated the same way as a book that is not fictional. Do you understand that? A book that the writer meant it to be an allegory um, will be diff- treated differently. If you want to understand what the writer meant to say, it means the way you read it is to try to get the message behind this story. But if it's a, fiction, if it's a um, you know, non-fictional book, the way you read it will also be what? Different, right? So, one of the, one of the major problems that people have, Israeli lay people have a Bible study, which the early church all appreciated because of their proximity to those people, is that over time, our cultures and our way of thinking has, has changed compared to the way the writers of the Bible and the way they were thinking at their time. So, in fact, not only are the genres, not only do you have to understand the genre of the book that you're reading, right? Do you know the meaning of genre? Ahem. I don't like the way some of you are looking at me. So, genre means the classification or the type of literature work, right? Not only do you have to understand the genre of the book, have, there's something else you guys have to also understand is that the, the genre of these books that were written thousands of years ago, many of them, the, the, those genre of books are not even available today. So the way they were thinking when they were writing those books is not even the way we think now. The way they think is not the way we think now. I think I was lamenting a little bit about this last Wednesday and all that. Now, because of the way we have come, our epistemology is mostly empirical, that means the way we gain knowledge now as human beings in this age, after the enlightenment and after the rise of empiricism and all these ways of getting knowledge, the way we get knowledge nowadays is by testing and observation, testing and observation. Our, even our basal metaphysics, the way we look at the world, the way we understand the world is very different from the way they look at the world. So if you're looking at people that thousands of years ago, their metaphysics was very different, which also affects their epistemology, it's what it leads to is that when those people are even writing, the way they write and their intention of writing is very different from the way we think nowadays. Church, do you understand that? One of the background things that I want you to appreciate, for example, is that if you look at this ancient Near East document and all that, this Asian Near East document, that is something that you see, as I'm saying it, it will make a lot of sense to you. Don't worry. Many of the things that scholars say, some of sometimes we understand it, it's just that they use big English. Um, to say it. So as I'm saying it, you'll appreciate what I'm saying. Um, If you look at all these ancient years documents and all these books, the Bible and other old books that were written in other cultures around this time, one of the things that you'll find is that the way they write, they focus on functional ontology. What that means is that functional ontology, what it means is that they name things based on what that thing does, not what that thing looks like. So these people, when they are naming something, when they're giving a name to something or describing an event or if they're naming anything or describing anything, they will describe it or name it based on what that thing does, how it functions, you know, things like how it's originated. Nowadays, let me give a practical example. Nowadays, if Adam had seen Eve, what nowadays person would have described her as, wow, this is a beautiful woman with fat in all the right places that is fair light complexion or dark complexion or whatever, eyes long. That's the way most of us would describe it. Most of you, when you describe, when you think of a car, the way you describe it is, the car was, it's black, it's an SUV, isn't it? You say it's a sedan, it's an SUV. When you describe a horse, you say the horse is big, the horse was black, the horse was white. When you describe a chair, you say the chair was grey. You understand that? The, the drum was electrical that's the way we tend to describe things now back in these days they describe things based on what that thing does so if someone like Moses saw a car he would have said the thing that carries people around Do you understand that just what I just said now. so if when Adam saw Eve, he would describe her as the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh because she came out of me. Functional ontology. If someone today was described, was described if you say, this very beautiful fine girl, you would not say a person that came out of me, this very beautiful fine girl. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's very important for you to understand this background because when you now, when you understand this about the way these people used to think back then, you now discover that even when they were writing, they were writing for the sake of revelation to bring out certain points. They were not concerned with the kind of things that we are concerned with now. And that leads me to the second thing that you said, so I'll both of them together. You must also be aware of historical chauvinism. That means the idea that you are smarter than the people that wrote the Bible because they did not know of gravity, of the theory of gravity, or because they did not know of the theory of relativity and all those kinds of things. IQ is not wisdom. So we should not look at them and assume that we are wiser. The moment you begin to look at it, we find out that those people are actually wiser, is that what they are using their wisdom for is not what you think people should use wisdom for, which in itself is proof that they are wiser than us. Do you understand that? What they use their intellectual prowess for is not what we think people should use their intellectual prowess for. So even many of the questions that we ask are also point us to this difference in the way of thinking compared to those people. Many of the questions that we ask are actually questions that show that the way we think is different from them. And that is the reason why the kind of answers that we're looking for, we will not find it there because what you are asking is not what they were bothered with. Do you understand that? Check out what I'm saying. Now, the questions that you are asking, it is not because they did not, um, they could not think that those questions should be asked, it's because they actually didn't think those questions were important. Or, let me say it like this from a biblical theological standpoint, that was not the revelation that God was um, communicating because what God wanted to communicate was something far, far more important than the trivial things that you are bothered about. When you are looking at the Bible, you want to see something to prove the theory of evolution, something to tell you the exact age of the earth, something to tell you exactly how many years have existed and all that. But in the scheme of things, what will that knowledge actually add to your life in terms of serving God adding to your sanctification, being useful to humanity, and all the actual important things in the world, what does that add? What does knowing about evolution have to do with it? Do you understand that? Did you get what I just said now? So the concerns and the genre of the Bible book of Genesis is very important for us to understand the background so that we'll, you know understand. Now to just say a couple of things to show you that it's not like as if the writers of the book or Moses and the writers of the Bible did not know what they were doing. That were the ones that knew what they were doing. That's one of the things that you consider incoherences, but they did not consider it incoherences because they had something they were communicating, which you don't understand. Let me just give you a surface example, right? If you wrote through the genealogies um, in the book of Genesis, right? Um, if you look through the genealogies from, I think from chapter... Where do genealogies start? Genealogies start from chapter five, right? Chapter five is where we see a lot of genealogies and everything. On average, you see that there are a lot of 807. Someone gave birth at the age of um, 105, and then he lived for another 807 years, and that person had children at the age of 90, then died at the age of 815, Um, you know? You see people living up to 900 and something. Someone lived up to 360 something before he had children and then died at the age of 900 and something. We see all those long exaggerated, um, not exaggerated, sorry, all those long years of ages, isn't it? And then we look at it and be like, these guys were probably goat herders and they did not know what they were doing and all that. But let me show you something funny. If you read Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter seventeen is where God came back to Abraham and told him that He's going to have that you know he should walk before Him and you know and be holy and everything and be blameless. And then Abraham now fell before God, and God now said, um, "I will keep my covenant with you. You're going to have children." And then Abraham was surprised. Do you know why? Because at this time he was already in his nineties, and Sarah also was about ninety, and He now said that, how is it possible for a man of my age to have children? How is it possible for a man of my age to have children? How is it possible for a woman of Sarah's age to have children? Meanwhile, Abraham's father and grandfather, all of them lived and had children in their hundreds. So you see that Abraham knew what he was saying. That means that the writer of Hebrews, obviously the writer of the Bible, Moses knew what they were saying. They knew that people don't usually have children. So, why will they admit, why would they say clearly that anybody that has children at the age of of 100 is not possible? And then the genealogies in chapter 6, chapter 5 will tell you that people are having children at the age of 300. You understand that? If you look at Genesis chapter 25, the Bible says that Abraham died at the age of, what was the age now? Is it 165 or something? And it said that he died at a ripe old age. Isn't it? Ripe old age, but if you compare Abraham to his grandfather and his great grandfather, he died like a child. His great grandfather and grandfather then died three hundred and something, nine hundred and something. He died at one hundred sixty-five. I died at an age at the ripe old age. If your grandfather died at nine and something, he died at one hundred sixty-five. What will you say? He died young. But Abraham, the Bible tells us that he died at a ripe old age. So it's not because they did not know what they were seeing. It's because they had other ideas in mind. Let me just give you the answer to the one of the ages and all that. So why does it look like as if the genealog- genealogies um, pre-Abraham, um, pre-Abraham seem to be having very long and all that. There are differences of opinion on all these things. Um, some groups will tell you that, some scholars will tell you that it's because of the they, they suspect or they think maybe Adam had eaten a fruit before he left the Garden of Eden. So there was vestiges of mortality. So the first set of people that came after him were still living long before the thing now. Jesus now came, God now came and said, people's wala is too much in chapter six. It's not past 120 again. But there are others that looked at it and um, they discovered something that in those, in the writers, in the days of Abraham and all that, the writers, there's there's something they do. This is a whole thing, it's a whole thing. If you look at the number of descendants when they put all the descendants together after the flood, you see that they actually end up in 70. Um, you see some places where they'll make a man have exactly seven sons um, and all those kinds of things. If you look at the ages, there's a whole thing. If you look at the ages and all that, if you calculate it, you'll find out it is something times seven and all those kinds of things. The point here is that whoever the, writer, the writers, when they were writing it, were using those numbers to indicate something about perfection, about the life of the person, and all those kinds of things. Now, in in our own time, if you want to say something about someone, the way we say it is by seeing it. You understand that? The way they say it is by using all those numerology to show that this is a perfect number, or this is a this, and all those kinds of things. So that was the reason why they did that. So those are the two schools of thought about it. In either case, either way, whichever side you want to lean on, whether you are the more... um, numerology side of it, or you believe it was um, eternal life that was dying over time and everything, At, at the end of the day, the lesson and the doctrine of whatever the passage communicates to us is what is most important. And so that is the reason why the prophets and the Lord and the apostles did not dwell on how long anybody lived. Rather, they dwelt on the revelation that came from those chapters. Do you understand that? The writer of Hebrews did not talk about how long Enoch lived. Jesus did not talk about how long Enoch lived. Peter did not talk about how long Enoch lived. But he talked about the fact that God used him and he was translated out of this world and all those kinds of things. Church, do you understand that? I said all those English to say something. Now, when looking to the book of Genesis, it is not a science textbook. It is not um, Dan Brown. And it is not, given the popular novels that we have nowadays, they didn't write like us. Their mindset was different. They were functional ontologists. They had specific ideas that they were trying to use all those things to communicate. So if you are going to get any answers that will be correct from these passages, is to ask ourselves, what revelation were they trying to communicate? Church, so we get that. So it's not as if they were stupid or they did not know what they were doing, it's that they had a different plan from the plan that you have. Do we, do we get that? You can keep your questions. We'll just answer everything at the end of the service. Hallelujah. Praise God. Okay. So let's quickly get into this. Question number one God created the darkness, and the darkness was good. Hallelujah. I had, de- I had deliberations this morning that seems that a particular darkness arises in the consequence of Him creating light. Juxtaposing supposing with Isaiah chapter 45, it would seem that darkness there was talking about the moral darkness. If darkness in Genesis 1 to 4 is moral darkness, then everything God created in Genesis 1 cannot be very good. Obviously, um, um, this is a very important rule for hermeneutics. Local context trumps larger context. Local context trumps larger context. These, um, what do you call it, um, hyper-grace heretics, they, they play this trick a lot. You take a word and take the, con- the context from another passage and come to use it to override the, the context in a local passage. Do you understand that? So that what the word means in another place, you want to come and use it to trump the meaning of the word in another place. You know, so when Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that God caused that to shine out of darkness and everything, light shined out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1, it's, that's rubbish. If your goal is to find what the writer meant to see, you look at the local context first. Overwhelmingly, majority of the time, the local context will tell you what the writer meant to see. Do you understand that? If that passage is still ambiguous, then you can now look at the larger context of the use of that word to give you an idea of what if it can be a tiebreaker. If the larger context does not tell you, then you go to an even larger context to try to find what that word is saying. Do you understand what I just said now? What I just said now is a basic law of hermeneutics and Bible study. Do you guys hear me? You guys, your faces are too frozen and too straight. Am I speaking too much English? Eh? Let me say it like this. When you are studying your Bible, you must read that particular passage in the context. You must read it finish. What most times what the writer is trying to say in that particular place, you will see it in that passage. It is only if that passage is still not clear that you now go and look for all the passages around it to try and tell you what that passage is saying. Some people used to play the trick that they will see a word in a passage and they would ignore what the context of that passage is saying, then they will go and bring the meaning of a word. The word will be used in a different way. So you know words can be used in different ways. Uh-huh. So in one passage it can be used in a certain way, in another passage it can be used in another way. Some people that want to play tricks and deceive people, what they do is that they will go and take the meaning of the word in another place that they like or fit the agenda, then they will use it to twist the other scripture, to say that is what he's saying. Meanwhile, the way the writer meant it in this particular passage is different. I, I think that's clear, right? <laughs> so, in Genesis chapter 1, when he talked about light and darkness, we was not talking about moral darkness of um, Isaiah chapter 45. So, is that okay? Very, very important. Um, and I should use the opportunity to answer the question of, um, the question that, that, that comes up about Genesis chapter 1 and whether or not it was seven literal days and everything. Again, it is not essential, whether it was seven literal days or not, because the writers were not concerned with that. Let me show you some things to show that the writer did not care about seven literal days, and that's why in all of church history, all the different views have been consistent. Since the early church, even in proto orthodoxy before the 19th period and all those early years, we already had early church fathers that were already arguing that one day is like 1,000, one, 000, one th- what day of God is like 1,000 years of man, and so that we don't know the exact number of years that it could have been long time and all those kind of things. Meanwhile, there were also those that argued that seven day, one day is not too much for God to do anything. Both of them are right. Do you understand that? <laughs> there's no reason why God cannot create the whole world in what, 24 hours. And there's no reason why God one day of God could not have been 1,000 years for us. So it's a non essential. It's something that we can be banting about, talking about in our theological discourses, but it's not something essential. To show you that it's not something essential, let me sh- look, at, look at this. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. He says, And God said, There be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light what? Day. And the darkness what? Night. So what's the first definition of day in this chapter? Light, just light, before the end of the verse. It now says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, in the same verse. What is the second meaning of the word day? A whole day, evening and morning was the first. In the same verse, the same word, one was used to describe light. The same word used to describe 24 hours. Those are two meanings of the word day. If you now go to the end of the chapter, um, later on, I think in verse 20, something, um, 20, in, in verse 14, um, the word day was used for light again, for, um, for, for light, which is, um, oh, this is the third definition of the word light. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be light in the vaults of the sky to separate the day and the night. So half of the day was, was now what? Day. Initially, it said day was what? Light. Secondly, it now said day was what? 24 hours. Now, we now say day was what? Daytime. When well you now jump to verse, um, um, chapter 2, verse 2, now it says, by the seventh day, God finished the work. So the seventh day is now the day, the time, the period that God rested. At least we know that God is not secreting new universes up to now. So generally, most of us will agree that the seventh day is God rested since then. But we say on the seventh day, God rested. How long is this seventh day? Do you understand that? Do you see that they are not they are not like us? They were not interested in what you're interested in. We are the one looking for whether days went four hours. In one chapter, he has given you four definitions of day. Go and be knocking your head on the wall. Because that's not what they had in mind. Church out together. So whether you're a theistic evolutionist or you are a young earth creationist. There are many theories, so many. Some people believe that God created the world old in seven days but old. That means that he created an old universe within seven days. Some people say that um, Moses was standing and seeing a vision and it was God's one day. God's one day is not the same as our own. So God's six days could be our own six billion years. Um, Different theories, it really doesn't matter. The Lord did not talk about it. The prophets were not, did not use it for any doctrinal thing and um, the apostles did not use it for any doctrinal thing. What is most important is the lesson. What is, the, what is Moses telling us here? That God created everything. Do you see that? That God created all things. That's what matters. Praise God. Second question is, how did Adam know Eve came out of him. Did he have a scar? <laughs> it's called intuition. Hallelujah. Intuition is um, knowledge that is from within. So there's divine intuition. So um, it just knew. Praise God. Again, it's not like us where you have to test everything before you know something, right? It just knew. Hallelujah. Um, I have a question. I want to probably articulate it regarding the historical creation of the Bible regarding creation and the age of mankind and the earth. Okay, we talked about that. Um, whether it was 6,000 years or 8,000 years, scientific evidence states otherwise. Yeah, so whichever one circles your fancy. Personally, me, I'm not dogmatic about anyone. So whichever one you want to believe. On the matter of the age of the earth, I'm actually not dogmatic. I actually um, do not care less. I'm serious, like... God created the universe looking like 11 billion years, but within 24 hours, it's what kilo can ye? like? So, what does that have to do with God? is everything. like, so, like, so, do you understand? Uh-huh. So, it doesn't. The problem is when people now try to copy and paste it as scientific knowledge that the Bible said it happened like this. Therefore, when scientists test and the, the, the test they are showing is showing them that the rock is 11 billion years, and hey, the rock should be 11 billion years, and that's what your machine is reading. It's not a problem. Do you understand that? It's not a problem. If your machine is reading 11 billion years, we'll say it with you that you you read your machine and the machine read 11 billion years. It's not a problem. My own God can create an old woman in one day. And if you re-see her, what does she look like? An old woman. Is she not old? Is she not 70 years old? But how old is she? 24 hours. My God is greater than you. So it actually really doesn't bother me. So... If it's bothering you, continue your studies, God will help you till you find the answer. (laughs) So, brothers, my most sincere, honest answer to you (laughs) really doesn't bother me. Praise God. Um, The Bible tells us that there's a firmament, which I believe is some kind of dome. Asian people believed was over the... Listen, 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 don't. (laughs) Always start from the text. Start from the text. Always start from the text. Don't already watch YouTube and they told you that the ancient peoples imagined that there was a dome over the sky and then you are bringing that filter to read the book of Genesis. It's going to affect your Bible study. Read the book of Genesis first. Do you understand that? And if you read the book of Genesis first on chapter 1 and everything, the writer of Hebrews was not talking about, I said writer of Hebrews, Genesis was not talking about firmament or no dome and everything. When he said firmament, was talking about the skies above, do you understand that? He was not concerned whether it was a dome or square-shaped and all those things. It's not an issue. Farmament just means farmament. If you read the book of Genesis chapter 1, look how it tells us that there was a vault above and God called it the word sky. And that's the end. See, sky. The sky was above. Please, don't bother yourself about the farmament or not. Okay? No, there was no firmament or the sky is the sky. It has always been so. It's not like as if God changed it from firmament to sky. The Bible just tells us that, he, that it was the sky and it was the sky. Right? How about we to take Genesis 1.1? God created the heavens and the earth? Is that a sort of a, of a preface to what God was about to do in the next couple of verses? Or is that the first thing he did? If it was the first thing he did, then the next verse should, would flow naturally when it says the earth was without form and void. Meaning the earth he created in the first verse. However, the plurality and duality of the word <laughs> heavens will be hard to ignore because is that to say there are more heavens than the one that was described in the subsequent verses? Or were to take it as pre- at, at, as a preface, then the plural heavens will also be a bit strange. That we might be able to assume plural is just referring to the skies. All right, you people know books too much in this church. We the warrior now. We the warrior now. So one of the things that um, other translations will see and scholars will tell you is that you can also read Genesis chapter 1 as, read it in in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can also read it as when God created the heavens and the earth. It just shows that there was a point when there was nothing and then God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when when the Bible uses the word heavens and the earth is to show us that everything celestial and everything terrestrial, there was a point where God created them. And then the chapter now goes and focuses and gives us details about the physical, the terrestrial world, right? It didn't go into the details of the celestial things. It goes into the details of the world. It didn't go talking so much about the heavens. Do you understand that? So the heavens there, whether it was talking about heavens, meaning physical sky, um, um, astrophysical stuff, together with spiritual heavens, the emphasis of Genesis chapter 1 went from talking about um, heavens and the earth and focused on how God created the earth and went into the details of man because the Bible is a book of God talking about God's purpose for humanity. Do you understand that? The Bible is focused on talking about God's will and God's plan and God's focus on humanity. So it makes perfect sense that the book of Genesis goes into talking about the things that concerns man. That's why even Paul himself says that the things he saw in the third heavens were not lawful to be t- talked about. Do you understand? What that means is that there are, just, there are some things that are not really our business. There are some things that are not profitable to us. Some things ah, just yes, yes, how are you? Some things are not profitable to us. Some things are not useful to us, and God did not go into them. Praise God. Do you understand that so whether the heavens there is talking about because <laughs> Genesis Day has caused a lot of problems you say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth between that heavens and the earth there was a period of like 10,000 years and the earth was without form and void that was the period where God had created the heavens and an angel, I show you a mystery and an angel <laughs> an angel fell from heaven and destroyed the earth and that's why the earth became without form and Void, all these things, Genesis, that caused all this problem. It's, it's, it's on. It's, it's, I'm not I'm in the hurry to say it's a lie, but. It's, what Genesis is telling us is that heaven had a beginning and earth had a what? Beginning. Even heaven. That's why we know that when we say we are going we're going to heaven, I'll go to the new earth and everything, is that we know, we're still telling you that even there, God is bigger than where we are going to. You understand that? Because even heaven has a word again. Praise God. So, yeah. I want to understand why God blessed Abel's sacrifice but rebuked kings. As far as I know, giving to God is not about the size of the offering but the heart behind it. He would always give a cheerful heart and not reluctantly or under compulsion. Good. Okay, so I want to say this and this is not a rebuke. I don't want you guys to take this the hard way. Ah, I say this thing, I don't want to be afraid of asking questions. Okay, let me see it so that I can help you. Um, when you are, when, when we have opportunities to ask questions, make sure you try and search first. Try and study first. It makes you less amenable to being deceived. Do you understand that? I'm not saying you should not ask questions. I've already warned you. I've already said it. Please, don't be afraid of asking questions. But there are some questions that show that, just if you ask questions, just read the Bible, it doesn't come to my mind just ask without even thinking about spending time to study and everything because if you read your bible you would have seen that the answer is in the book of Hebrews praise God Abby, the answer is straight clear Hebrews chapter 11 let's open there Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says by faith Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offering, by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So, why did God look at Abraham on Abel's offering? Let's go back to Genesis um, chapter 4. The letter of Hebrews already tells us that Abel brought a better sacrifice. Hallelujah. Genesis chapter 4 Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And now, Abel kept flocks and Cain walked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to, to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel's, Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Hallelujah. The correct inner workings on why exactly Abel's um, sacrifice was considered better, um, we have a few theories based on sound biblical theology that we'll talk, I'll talk about it very shortly. But the answer is that obviously Abel brought a better sacrifice as the writer of Hebrews has told us and God looked on favor of it. This is a very, very important message. I can preach a whole message on this. It's actually something very important for us to look Let's just answer the question. The answer, the answer, clearly, is that Abel brought a better sacrifice. Is that all right? So there's no hocus pocus or hidden agenda anywhere. Um, what made Abel's sacrifice to be better? Um, one of the things that we can tell from the surface is the kind of heart that the two of them had. The writer of Hebrews also alludes loose to it. There's a state of heart. Abel had faith toward God and there was a purity of heart in his sacrifice towards God. And Cain demonstrated the kind of evil heart that he is that when God spoke to him, God did not, even, God did not judge him anything, God just said, your brother's own is better than your own. And then because of that, he got angry. So he tells you that Cain did not have a good heart. That's one. So Ebel was a man of faith. That means that, and just like we said earlier, just like we've said in the series on faith and all that, look, look let me say it like this. First of all, Abel had, had a right heart. And Abel had, and Cain had a terrible heart, yeah, a terrible evil heart, obviously, from both of them. The second one is that when we go deeper into the issue of the faith that Abel had, if we remember that faith is about submitting to God on God's terms, faith is about putting your trust in God. And so that means that faith is believing in God on God's terms. That means that what God wants you to do is what you do. So if faith is about that, There's also something else that we can see here that is instructive, and that is that um, if we look through the scriptures, we see that God in different ways keeps reaffirming or echoing something that is to come, which is the sacrifice of his son on the cross for us. And so when Abel offers a sacrifice, um, offers a sacrifice of flock, the firstborn of his flock, and Cain brought grain. If we look at the larger story and history of salvation that was unfolding from the moment that Adam and Eve fell, when God killed an animal to cover them up, we begin to see that the Lord is teaching humanity something, that he, has, he is making a way or he has made a way by which men can be able to come to him and be pleasing to him through the sacrifice of a flock, or of a living, unblemished, do you understand that? Sacrifice. We begin to see that the Lord is saying something, that his plan is to restore humanity to himself through the sacrifice of the flock, of the sheep, of the lamb. And that is exactly what Abel did. Not only did Abel now bring just any kind of of his flock, he brought the firstborn of his flock. You guys know where we hear that from, right? Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Hallelujah. That means that he is the first person, he is the life and the resurrection, he is the archetype of death and resurrection, which all of us will also enjoy by reason of his death. So, it makes perfect sense that in terms of the way Abel conducted himself, in terms of the sacrifice of itself, itself, biblically speaking, that that will receive favor from God. Hallelujah. But I should also say this also. What the Bible says is that the Lord Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. That word favor there is important to note that it's not like as if Abel earned it. It was favor. That again is another whole message of how that a man doing what is right and doing what is pleasing to God Does not necessarily win or earn the favor of God. At the same time, God can look down and have favor on a man. So God's favor on a man is not because the man earned it, but that man will not say, Because God has favored me, I will also do my things anyhow. Church, are we together? Do you hear what I just said? So Abel received favor. Favor is not earned. Favor is not earned. God's favor is not earned because even with the fact that Abel was, um, um, you know, was doing the right thing, his heart was in the right place and he was offering the right kind of sacrifice, all those things are still filthy rags. You know, that's what, the, that's what Isaiah tells us that all your righteousness is what? Are you guys in church? All the righteousness is what? So even though Abel was doing what is right as far as he could, It was not enough to earn God's favor. So God still favored him. So you must put those things in perspective. Hallelujah. I hope that is clear. No, there's a there's a larger theological discussion about this. Feeling tempted to go into no, let's just move on. Praise God. Um I'm confused about why God would cause Cain for killing Abel, but still pull a cause on anyone who harms Cain. And because before God, two wrongs don't make a right. Um, Two wrongs don't make a right. The fact that God is judging somebody does not mean that his judgment is in your hand. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do not repay evil with evil. So yes, God can judge somebody. does not mean that you too have the right to be judging people. Do you understand that? So yes, Cain's... Cain's king. Cain's um, Cain king. <laughs> king is in God's hand, not in your hand. So it's just Romans chapter 12 all over again. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, the fact that God judged Cain does not give other people the right to judge him. Praise God. You should just imagine it now, that because I did something wrong, and God is judging me, and I see everybody, they chalouam, you know it's be like... Um... <laughs> This will be like, uh, you guys, I don't know if you guys want to write secondary school. That you know, a you know community beating. Even one guy messed up, you know, the way that mob mentality comes up. I and mean, just the, chalo, the guy just slap the guy, give the guy a blow. No, now praise God. Even the people that want to beat him, all of them are sinners. Um, where did King's wife come from? <laughs> my brother, and my sister, and myself, I don't know. <laughs> Let me tell you the theories, and the problem is. The ascending thing in the book of Genesis that it's okay for us to have difference of opinion about. The only place there will be a problem is if the hermeneutic that you use to arrive at your opinion does not, is not correct Christian way of doing hermeneutics. We can have difference of opinion or something because we'll talk about Nephilim now. But the problem is how do you arrive at your own difference of opinion? If we go through the normal biblical kind of hermeneutic, apostolic hermeneutic that we're supposed to go through, and we still arrive at different opinions, then we agree to disagree. We agree on the humanitics and disagree on the conclusions. Do you understand that? So, the problem is the you use. Now, I research this thing. I saw kinds of answers and I'm worried. And I'm worried. These American scholars, they used to do all kinds. So, me, I'd rather say it was one of the daughters. I know it's you, but in those olden days, ultimately, People were close and relations and everything. I would rather agree. I would rather head to the side of saints was one of the daughters of the family line. There is another theory. And that theory, the hermeneutic is one kind because let me just tell you about it so you can know. The hermeneutic is one kind in that it says Adam and Eve were not the only two original humans that there were many two original humans, Adam and There were many two original humans, but God chose Adam and Eve like federal heads. And that's why, when I heard that thing, that theory of covenant, I just began to shift back for it. I began to shift back. So this theory is that they are, they are, they are the fed, purely the federal head of the human race, and that because they are purely the federal head, they were actually other people. So even when Cain moved away, and the Bible says that he went to another land and he found wife there and all those kinds of things. That there were actually many human beings on the earth. But God created Adam and Eve to be like priests in the Garden of Eden. And when they messed up, the thing they did affected all humans. And they have a lot of arguments. Because, you know, in the olden days, the person that stands for you is in a way is your father. And all those kinds of things. I don't like it. I'm sorry, I don't like I don't like it. I'd rather say I don't know. I'd rather say I don't know, but because that humanity is not giving, it's not sounding apostolic. It's not, it's already giving. It's not, it's it's not sounding like the way the apostles thought, you understand? It's not sounding like the way apostles thought. If you see the way Paul spoke in Romans chapter five, this thing is, all of us was supposed to come from Adam and Eve. It's not just Federal Head. So even that Federal Head thing now, I don't I I think I have inside that. What, what do you mean? So yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, and so because of that, they believe that there were many other human beings on the earth. And all that and all that. So where the king's wife come from, I would rather say maybe it was one of the sisters. Or, or something. I don't know. I don't know. I'm serious, I don't know. So, praise God. The good thing about it is that Jesus and the apostles didn't talk about it. So, I do not don't put myself under pressure. We can talk about it in a, we can be, um, you know, just sipping juice and doing theological discussion after, but for the sake of Christianity and all that, I don't know. So, the safe answer is maybe she was probably one of the descendants from the brother's side and everything. Can we say it was prevenient grace that separated Abel from Cain? Because if sin has penetrated into man's nature from Adam's sin, then Abel should be as unworthy as Cain. I used to think that the likes of Abel, Enoch, and Ramos that believed the prophecy of the gospel for them should be called righteous in their generation Is there righteousness from something they believed or just prevenient grace? That's a very good question. Hmm. That prevenient grace is given in <coughs> Let me say it like this. Um... There's something called common grace. Okay, let me tell you everything. There's something called common grace in reformed theology, which is that there's a grace of God that God has given everybody. It's the imago Dei, even though it is not perfect, it's broken. But all of us have something inside of us that can make us to do some good, that makes us to... That's why an atheist can say, ah, this thing is not good, it's not bad. That way, we be arguing against God, but we're talking about good and evil. Do you understand that? There's a common grace that makes people to know that some things are moral good and some things are moral... Evil. But there's a difference between knowing something is a moral good or having a sense of moral good. Because even when you think something is a moral good, sometimes you are saying it for the wrong reasons. You might have your conscience might have been taught to think something as evil is good. All those things can be warped. There is going from common grace to effectual calling is a leap. Now effectual calling is that there's a grace of God that God releases by which God reveals himself to a person, and the person believes in God personally. Not just the idea of God. The idea of God is still under the ambit of common grace. So that's why people like Plato, Aristotle can have an idea of an unmoved mover, unchangeable changer, first cause and all those kinds of things. So the general idea of a God is still under common grace. The idea of God as a person revealed through Jesus to us is specific revelation. And it is God that can come and reveal himself to us like that. Let me tell you where the argument is among we Protestants. Do you understand that? Now, there are some of us, among we Protestants, that we believe that... Praise God. So, there are some of us, among we Protestants, that we believe that this effectual calling, that means that when God shows himself to a person, um, the person cannot resist God, but the person must respond to God. Because God is too That means... That's, that's what you, 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 you often hear call um, irresistible grace. You understand that? That means that if God reveals himself to a person, like for example, Saul on the way to Damascus, God showed himself. Can anybody imagine Paul saying, mm, okay, um, I know I'm blind, I know I heard your voice, but I'm not really doing. You understand that? Uh-huh. So they'll say it's called effectual point. That means that God calls you, there's nothing like I'm not doing. Uh-huh. Um, the problem is that and this goes back to the issue of God's sovereignty in, um, in salvation, all right? This is where the arguments are. So some people will say it like that, that when God shows himself to you and calls you, you, will not, you, can't, you can't resist it. Then there are some people that will say, why have then some people not saved? That means that God is not revealing himself to some people. And if God is not revealing himself to some people, that is not fair. Because that means that God wants them to go to hell. Do you understand that? And so they will now say there's something called prevenient grace. That's what they call the Arminians. So we have the, so the word Calvinist is a later development. Let's just say people from John Calvin's line of things, it's a line. And then we now call, the guy called Jacob Arminius, the next generation came and said, well, God reveals himself to people. Um, but even when he reveals himself to people, people can still reject. I've told you the problem with, the quote problem, the question that the first one causes. The problem that the first one causes is that if God is effectually calling people and people cannot resist, why are some people not responding? Does that mean that God wants some people to go to hell? That's the question that that understanding causes. The question that the other side causes is that the the other side will say we have prevenient grace. That means that when, when we preach the gospel, the gospel itself is powerful and God uses it to touch our hearts. But some people will see the truth and they will turn back. The question that that one now causes is that it now says that that means that, number one, God can reveal himself to a person and a person can turn God down. And that means, number two, ultimately, is that when people are saved, they get the credit. Do you understand that? That means the difference between the person that is saved and the person that is unsaved is that I, I, I responded because I could. You refused to respond. So when it gets to heaven, I lift up only hands. You say, thank you, Jesus, for making a way. But the rest, I did it. You know, both of them are difficult questions to answer. And so that's why we have be very, very careful. And let me tell you the honest truth. eh? And let me tell you as your pastor. As a Christian, which we are, we speak, we speak from where we are standing. And you will notice that this is more consistent with the New Testament, is that you speak from where you are standing. So when you're talking about salvation, we don't talk about salvation as if um, salvation is something that was there and I discovered that it was a good idea, so I chose it. The other guy did not choose it. We talk as if God revealed himself to us and saved me. Left to me, I won't have done the right thing. God saved. So we describe God's grace to us as effectual calling. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? This is very, very important. The problem is that in teaching this thing, it can get very sophisticated because providence is a very dicey thing. And that's why the Protestant Confession um, will tell you something. They say doctrine of providence is something you must handle with great care. The problem with, and you see this a lot with all these American Calvinist guys, the problem is that, so we we'll talk about effectual calling and it sounds like fatalism. Ah, God knows who those are calling on, you know, those that know everything they are going to wear or anything like that. God has killed some people before they were even born and everything. And it sounds very foolish and all that. You know? And then the other side, because people don't want to say that, they sound like as if they sound semi-pelagian or pelagian. They now begin to sound like as if We are the ones that saved ourselves. Oh, we are the ones that knew the gospel was good and we saved ourselves. So, if we want to t- talk with the tone of the apostles and all that, we have to talk in a very sophisticated way. And so that's why you hear people that know what they are saying. They will say things like, effectual calling is that like um, 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 Broche's um, seminary teacher, who said, effectual calling is that God revealed himself in a beautiful way, and it was too beautiful for me to turn my back from. You understand that?
1: Church, you understand that?
0: The reason why I said all those things to say that is that, after understanding everything I've said now, Cain and Ebel, what do you guys think was the kind of grace they were dealing with? Were they dealing with common grace? Or do you think it was prevenient grace? Or do you think it was an effectual calling at work in Abel's life? What do you guys think it was?
2: (laughs) Why are you guys laughing?
0: What do you guys think? <laughs> Praise God. Okay, I, th- I think it was common grace. I think it was common grace. I think um that grace of God that was common to all of humanity. I think that's what it was. I think that's what it was. I don't know. I think that's what it was, sir. I think um effectual calling happens in salvation itself, salvation proper and things that pertain to salvation. I think it was common grace. I think so. I think the kind of thing that Cornelius had. Whereby he just knew that he should be giving to arms to the poor and to be praying to a God he does not know. But he knows there's a God out there somewhere. I think it's it's um in line with what Paul's talking about in Genesis chapter um, in Acts chapter 17, when he was talking about um, you know, that um God had marked the boundaries of our time and um that we may that we may seek him and perhaps we may find him. I think he's still in the ambit of that, right? It's um that's broken um, in Cain... Ebel has been taught by experience that there is a God. Do you understand that? He has been taught by experience that there is a God, and this is what you do you offer sacrifice and all those kinds of things. So I think he's in the realm of common grace, and then God now showed favor to him. Praise God. Does that help
2: that answer the question?
0: Um, let's go on. How does the depiction of Adam and Eve's nakedness differ between Genesis 2 and 3? Genesis chapter 3, what does it mean? The text suggests that nakedness had itself transformed, signifying vulnerability or fear, or was the introduction of sin that they gave their physical state a negative meaning? So they were naked all along. It was just their perception of it. And this is what we've been talking about in the true blessedness teaching that we've had so far. The things that you think will make yourself sufficient, when you go after them, they will make you realize how much deficient you are. You feel vulnerable. The solution to your vulnerability is God. You feel you are lacking in good. The solution to your lack is God. When you rob yourself of God and you try to satisfy your needs with all these other material things or the things in this world or whatever Satan presents you with, what will happen is that you will now discover that those things will create more inadequacies in your life. It will create more deficiencies in your life. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They were sufficient with God because God was their covering. They were sufficient. So they didn't realize that they were naked. They didn't feel vulnerable. The reason why everybody runs away when they're naked is because nakedness is vulnerability. It is to be vulnerable. It It is literally the most physically vulnerable that any human being could be. So, When they were with God, they did not see or did not realize or feel any kind of vulnerability because God was their satisfaction, God was their everything. Then Satan now told them that they have a chance of being able to do their own thing. In the moment they agreed to it and put their trust in that fruit as a way to know what is good and evil, they now realize they cut themselves off from God, they rejected God. And by rejecting God, they now realized how that by themselves, they are what? Vulnerable. So that's just what happened. They, were, they didn't change. But because they had lost that connection with God, they now realize their vulnerability. That's what happened to them. Praise God. So actually, God is our sufficiency. And everything in this world will only make you more vulnerable. Money is not the security that you think it is. It makes you more vulnerable. It makes you feel more naked. It makes you feel less. If you think that money will solve all your problems, the more you have, the more you will discover that the money is bringing a lot of problems into your life. And same thing with all the other things. Sex, drugs, relationships, children, all the goods in this world that you think will satisfy your problem. You'll just be reenacting them, Adam, Adam and Eve over and over and over. Praise God. Genesis 2 verse 17 says, If you eat of it, you will surely die. Yet after Adam and Eve disobeyed, they didn't immediately die. Of course, the die there is not, um, um, it's not physical death. Um, it was the worst kind of death, the most important death, which was being cut off from the source of life. Hallelujah. God is life, and to be cut off from him is to be dead. So the most important death that a person could die is the one they died. The physical one was just a manifestation of the spiritual one. Hallelujah. So this kind of question mean what does Genesis 6 mean when he also says my spirit will remain in man does it imply God's presence and influence on humanity the Holy Spirit or he relates with God's patience and locks of human beings before punishment or something else. Genesis chapter 6 let's open it.
2: So we'll end here. the most important, the most interesting part of um, of this. Verse 6 Sorry. it was in verse
0: 3 that he says and the Lord said my spirit will not contain humans forever for their mortal, their days will be 120 years. Um, so, the writer of Hebrews tells us something interesting. It tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Hallelujah. So, even our lives are being sustained by it. That means that if people live old enough above 120, is because their lives, physical lives, are being sustained. This is a reiteration of something I tell you guys often, and I say over and over and over again. Because man was evil, God removed the anointing for living this is the lesson from this chapter. What the writer of Pope Moses is telling us here is that because man's heart was evil, God removed the anointing or the immortality, in quotes, that enables human beings to live above the age of 120. Why? Because the longer man lives, the more evil he will do. And Cameroon now, is it Cameroon that is complaining? They are complaining that their, their bad president has been there for 42 years. The reason why some of them have hope and they can rejoice it's because they know that last last by ninety he go die. Imagine he can live to three hundred. <laughs> Imagine he can live to three hundred. Then you will know that there's wala. So essentially, God is saying that my spirit will not support. My spirit. Will, <laughs> let me sound like I'm My spirit will not sponsor the spiritual information that enables humanity to live to more than 120. He <laughs> will not sponsor the genetic material that's... F- <laughs> i what I'm saying here. Basically, so... See, if I was that possible, <laughs> good God. Verse 67 says, seven um, read verse six, it says, and God regretted that he made human beings on the earth. The, I checked, and this one is not whining and everything. The, the word regretted there just means God was grieved. God was not happy. Um, and this is, of course, like the Bible tells us that you can grieve the Holy Spirit and all that. Now, don't think of God's grieving and God's regret like human grieving and human regret. It just means that the thing displeased God, right? So I told you guys that there's a pleasing will of God, right? And there's that which is not pleasing that God still uses. You understand that? that God still ordains and God uses and everything. Um, so when man became evil and was doing all kinds of evil, this thing was greatly displeasing to God. That's just what it means. It's not anything bigger or deeper than that. Okay? So God already saw that it will happen. God knew that it will happen. But the fact that God did not know it will happen does not mean it did not displease God. So one, funny enough, I was having a funny argument that day with one very childish person, obviously, a fruit of this hyper heresy line and everything, and you say because God regretted it, if God regretted something, why did God do it? It was a very, very foolish question, because this is a simple example. John chapter 11, the Bible tells us that he um, told Jesus that Lazarus is about to die, that Jesus said what? That not surely in death, that God is using it, God has ordained it for his glory. Then Jesus went there, after he had died, and Jesus still cried. Why? Because what is not good is not good. Do you understand that? The fact that God ordains it or God uses it um, for his glory does not mean that it is not good. What is not good is not good, but God can turn what is not good for his glory. Do you understand that? Church, you get that? Because you must understand that God is not our mate. God is not our mate. And so there's no temptation to say that because God can be grieved by something, you're not trying to suggest that maybe that thing is outside of God's control. The fact that something inside of creation is displeasing to God does not mean that God is not in control of that thing. God will use it for his glory. do do you understand that? So Jesus wept even though he foresaw that Lazarus would die, but that death will not end in death. He was going to raise him up, and yet he what? Wept. So that is to let you know that um, you know, even if we go through things, we can, you know, trust in God and everything, but what is not good is still not good. But that's why you cannot say, and this is a good thing to say, you cannot say, um, we are going to heaven, and someone dies of cancer, and I say, don't cry. We are going to heaven. Ah, ah. Do you understand that? Cancer was not the original plan, so we are going to where the original plan is, but it still doesn't mean that cancer is now the original plan. cry. Someone died, we will cry. We will cry well. Cry well and get over it. Praise God. So let's talk about Nephilim. Praise God. Now, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When human beings began to increase on the earth and other were born to them, the sons of God saw the sons of, sons of humans that the sons of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend the humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans and they had by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, <laughs> there are three theories of what happened here. The first theory is that this passage was about the children of Seth versus the children of Cain. Um, the children of Seth were good people, the children of Cain were bad people. So, the children of Cain started sleeping with the children of Seth and corrupted them and then the whole world now became corrupt if St. Augustine believed it, Luther believed it, John Calvin believed it. But um, again, these are non-essentials, all right? These are non-essentials. The problem with this one is that it doesn't really cohere, doesn't jive very well with the local context of the passage. Because local context does not say anything about Seth and all that. The, another part is that it talks about the children of humanity. You cannot call the children of Cain not humanity. You can't say children of Cain as sons of God, and children of Seth as humanity and all that. So it doesn't really follow, um, right? So. Yeah, that is that. The second one is the theory that the, that the sons of God are angels. And the reason why people believe this is because we have a couple of scriptures in Job, Psalms, that tell us that even in the book of Exodus, there are certain entities called the sons of God that sit in council with God. These supernatural entities came in to be with the human women, and these women give birth to um, mighty men. What the local context actually says is that they were heroes of old. It was later in the book of Numbers that certain spies were reporting and they were saying people were giants and were descendants of the Nephilim. That people now transpose the idea of giants into the scripture. What the scripture actually says is that they were men of renown. And this second theory is the most popular among all the scholars. Michael Heiser believes it. Paul Copan believes it. James Hoffmeier believes it. It's the majority position. Recently, I met with him. <laughs> With, um, with someone in our house and everything, last since, towards the end of last year, and it bleeds you so much. And this is the story, the apostles also like this one. And by apostles, I don't mean the Bible apostles, I mean the apostles in Nigeria, they, they love this one so much, because the story is actually very interesting. You can write a whole Marvel Cinematic Universe on this story. Picture it, angels come, they take women, the women give birth to mighty giants. These giants start causing problems, and then there was a flood that killed them. But because many of these giants that were born, they had lost their original estate. Um, they, they were the children of angels. So when the flood killed them, they became disembodied spirits. And so that's why they are looking up and down for bodies to possess. And so that's why, um, if they don't see a body to possess, they cannot survive. In fact, the, the spirits that are legion um, in the, that was in the possessed man of gatherings, some of them were the spirits of the. <laughs> see, if I cook this story, <laughs> I'm saying it like this because I don't agree with it. <laughs> But I'm sorry, I'm sorry to make it sound like that. But there's some people that actually believe it, and I should represent their position well. Um, so, and many people actually believe it. People that are far better than me, that no book more than me. So I should actually present their position well. It just sounds funny to me, that's why. There's a third theory. We might not be in the majority, but I can defend it very well. Again, this is not an essential doctrine. So we can have difference of opinion about it, we can quibble and argue. And everything, But I believe I have a third theory that makes way more sense with the local context of the scriptures and everything. And that is the theory that these sons of God were just human beings. Let me defend my position. <clears throat> First of all, if you look at the story and it says the sons of God saw the daughters of humans, that the humans were beautiful. Now, the sons of God in some books talks about angels, but they also tell other parts of the Bible where sons of God talks about human beings a places where Adam, and David was called sons of God, Jesus calls us sons of God and everything. And then to even make it more interesting is that in the olden days, in these days, kings in the world, mighty men and mighty warriors were called sons of God. The Egyptian Pharaoh was a son of God. The king of Assyria, son of God. King of Babylon, son of God. Any empire in this world, they all believed their kings were sons of God. One. Number two. The verse 3, the Lord said my spirit would not abide with humans forever. So if you look at the local context and don't import it, just read the context. Imagine you never heard that sons of God can mean angels. If you just read it this scripture without being told that ever before. I mean, this book was written before all the other books that call sons of God angels. If you just read it, what the, what the Bible says is that the, the, the Lord um, said the human beings began to increase in the earth. And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and um, they married any of them they chose. But the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. So when the Lord says that he, his spirit will not abide, he didn't say, My spirit will not abide with some angels or with some entities. He says, My spirit will not abide with humans. They even now if you not read verse 4. He now says, The left were on the earth in those days. And afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children with them, this NIV translation. Anyway, let's just go on. Went to Daughters of Humans, and actually, they were, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. You see this, heroes of old, men of renown statements, um, is a word that means, um, where is this? Meredith Klein. So, I'm on the side of Meredith Klein, John Walton, Malcolm Jones, and Samuel O'Reilly, praise God. <laughs> if you go and read um, um, Genesis chapter 10, for example, when the Bible was talking about um, different people, I think it was verse 8 or so, Look at Genesis chapter 8 verse, Genesis chapter 10 verse 8. It says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, which is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So in that verse, when it says, who became a mighty warrior on the earth, the word there is um, 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 giborim, like Jehovah el-gibor, the word giborim there. So when it says, the nephilim were on the earth. And these Nephilim were the gobirim. That means these people, these so-called Nephilim and their descendants were people of renown. The word used for their there was actually used for a human being, like Nimrod, two chapters after. Telling us that, um, and then if you look at all the surrounding context and everything, the word used, um, like I said now, the word gobirim was used also for a normal human being everybody can tell was a human being. I look at the larger context and everything, it makes sense that in those days, there were certain mighty men of old warriors and all those kinds of things that started, um, what they call it, um, biological line of kingship. They were the kings of all these big dynasties, Assyria, Babylonia, and all those places that were doing all these evil things. And they were literally called sons of God. Go and check, everywhere, Pharaoh was the son of God, king of Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, everybody, even Alexander the Great, that everybody knows his father. He immediately became an emperor. The next thing they say is that Zeus was gonna give birth to him. That Zeus, no as has slept with his mommy. Once you are a great man in those days, they call you a son of God. So, and then, I want to say something. So for that buttress the point. Um, so further, that butchers, the point is that um, after the flood, all the things that we always hear about, they definitely don't want to give birth to giants and everything. The other place where people get this idea from was from Numbers chapter 11. Um, no, it was not Numbers chapter 11. Number 13, verse 33 talks about how the spies, the 10 spies that had bad reports, they went into the land of Canaan and they came out with the report and what they said was that we saw the Nephilim there and the descendants of Anak and everything. Obviously their, their report was a lie anyway in the first place. The point now is this. Um, obviously it means that there was a belief system then that they were setting people that were big, uh, that were giants and those giants might have been the descendants of Nephilim. Internally, internally, it is not coherent. Why? Because if the flood killed all of them, where did they come from? That's one. Um, you know, that obviously doesn't make any sense. So, um, where did these guys now come from? Where did these um, Nephilim now come from? The fact that these guys were telling lies was the first part. Number two is that even the matter of giants in this particular passage is obvious that they, these guys were exaggerating. They were saying we were like grasshoppers beside them. These were the same people that those people now entered the land and killed all of their finish? So, obviously, these guys were exaggerating, right? But more importantly, the point is that this text does not prove that these Nephilim were not human or that they were super, supernatural in any way because the people who were the great warriors of renown, it makes possible sense that some of them were big people. There's nothing strange about the fact that some of them will have been big people and that they were fighting and winning empires and conquering for themselves and all those kinds of things. And then those guys now had a whole legend around them that these guys were different and then people feared them as everything. So it makes perfect sense. So, you know, yeah. So I'm um, together with Meredith Klein and John Walton. All I defer dis- I with Michael Heiser and Paul Copan, hallelujah. I, I think, I don't think that there were any angels because they would not even go to the metaphysics of it. This whole idea of human beings getting um, angels coming down, getting fertile bodies that can impregnate other women. I don't know. It's just giving... I don't know what to call it. Praise God. So maybe it's my own bias. I don't know. But anyway, that is that. Is that. Hallelujah. So I give you the three theories. Seth versus King, Sons of God, and Warrior Kings. All right? Praise God. Okay, there's one last thing. The last question is the issue of um, the flood. Was it global or was it local? Again, the writer of Genesis is not concerned with the kind of concerns that we have. As far as the writer of Genesis is concerned, it was global because everybody in the view of the person that was writing it died. Now, to be fair, people like John Walton also um, John Walton wrote a book together with um, forgotten name of that man. They did the archaeology and really and truly there was a flood from the um, southwestern part of, of um, the, that um, Euphrates Basin down to the Arabian Peninsula, down all those areas of Nidolese. There's actually archaeological evidence that shows that, that whole place is a bull And there was actually a flood there some time many years ago. And so because of that, the archaeology, they believe that. And because this book, this book comes from that region, they believe that it makes a lot of sense together with science and all those things that show that it was probably truly a regional flood, that God killed all the people in that area. And as far as they were concerned, and if you look at the scriptures, a lot of people, in the Bible says all the world, it's talking about from the view of the writer, not necessarily all the world. So there's a whole robust scholastic argument that it's a regional flood. My point is that it doesn't really matter. Number one, is anybody arguing or debating the fact that God can flood the whole world and kill everybody? Is anybody debating that? It's right really if everybody is an evildoer. Is, God, is anybody debating that? Is the God that gave Sodom and Gomorrah water, water. You understand that? It's not a problem. So the point, the message is that everybody that was an evildoer, God sent a flood, and judged all of them and killed them and preserved only those that were doing the right thing. Even those that were preserved, it's not because they were so good, but God just, at least they were better. And God had mercy on them and saved them. Do you understand that? Um, so that's the lesson of the story. So whether it was regional, those are the kind of questions that 21st century minds, if our post-enlightenment minds, these are the kind of things that we like to bother about. But if you are thinking the way they were thinking, it's really not important. It's not important because it doesn't it doesn't change what God had in mind, what the will of God is. It doesn't change what God can do or what cannot do. What is most important is that God is, is terribly God is terribly God is terribly um, active against evildoers and that God will preserve those um, you know that he, he he his favor falls on who are also working in righteousness, and that um, you know those blessings the lessons that, the, that Jesus and the apostles bring out of it. What Jesus and the apostles teach us is what the, the story is important for, right? So, yeah, we can have theological discussions after to argue whether it was possibly regional or local. And the truth is that the way our current world is going, people that are advocating for regional will probably win and they will make people that go for global, make them sound like as if they're just fundamentalists and everything. But really and truly, I have a source spot for people that are, giving fundamentalist because there's a sense of honor for God's word that people that are more I don't know the word to use. I don't want to say intellectual because they're both intellectual, but people that are more liberal with the text, people that are more liberal with the text. There's a, there's a kind of reverence that from those they come to call fundamentalists tend to bring to the text that those people don't bring to the text. Do you understand that? So, Brilliant, really, really. As a pastor, I'll tell you, whether it was regional or local, God, don't even try God, right? So, um, that's the answer I'll give you. Praise God. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. At this excellent church God bless you